This Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by AISC Continuing Education. Visit AISC.org slash seminars to find a seminar in a city near you. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Continuing Education Department at AISC. My guest today is Louis F. Geschwinder, Ph.D. P.E., a former Vice President of Engineering and Research at AISC and Professor Emeritus of Architectural Engineering at the Pennsylvania State University. Dr. Geschwinder received his bachelor's degree in building science from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and both his master's of science in architectural engineering and his Ph.D. in civil engineering from Penn State. He is a registered professional engineer and taught at Penn State for more than 40 years. Professor Geschwinder is past chairman of the Committee on Design of Steel Building Structures of the Structural Engineering Institute of the American Society of Civil Engineers and is currently a member of the AISC Committee on Specifications, chairing its member design technical committee. Dr. Geschwinder has been an author and presenter in many of the American Institute of Steel Construction's lecture series. Good morning, Lou. Good morning. Thanks again for taking time to talk to us today. Sure. So you had a very long and illustrious career as a professor at Penn State where you just retired. You'd been a professor for over 40 years. What drew you to teaching? Well, as an undergraduate in an architecture program, I found that I was helping my classmates understand the structures that we were studying and found that I liked that. So when I applied to graduate school, I applied for an assistantship and I received an assistantship and I started teaching right away in the architectural engineering program here at Penn State. And things just progressed from there. I really enjoyed it. I found I learned the material better by helping other people learn it. Things progressed and seemed to be the the right place for me. Do you remember your favorite professor from your college career? Well, as an undergraduate, my, my favorite professor was Roland Hummel in the architecture school at Rensselaer. And he was a Penn State architectural engineering graduate. I worked with him, helping him prepare slides for lectures and got to talk to him about a lot of things and really used him as a sounding board as I tried to decide what I wanted to do with my future. When I decided that I really didn't want to be an architect, I was much more interested in being an engineer. I talked with him about graduate schools, and since he was a Penn State architectural engineering graduate, that was one of the places he recommended. And then following up on that, of course, I ended up here at Penn State. And when I got to Penn State, I was in the architectural engineering program, but I took a lot of graduate-level courses in civil engineering. And one of the professors in civil engineering was Harry West, who was a new PhD, just got back from the University of Illinois. And I took classes during my master's degree with him. And then when I decided to continue on for a PhD, he was my PhD advisor. I have to say that in terms of my teaching style and the way I approach things, I learned an awful lot of who I am from Harry West. Uh, What do you hope is the most important thing that your students take away from your classes? Well, I'd like them to think about what they do and not just plug equations. One of the problems with students coming up basic calculus and science classes is that they they have equations and they try to get specific answers from those equations. When you get into structural engineering and and all the advanced engineering things and applications, you've got to think about what you're doing and there are usually more than one answer for a lot of the problems. There may not be more than one answer for a specific equation. I'd like like them to think about what the problem is, what they're trying to resolve, how they're going about it. Do you think there's a difference between the caliber of students that you had when you first started teaching and now? I mean, could you compare the caliber of your students today with from when you first started teaching? 
I personally don't think there's any difference. They are different. They are different because of uh, the background. You know, mm-hmm. Certainly when, when I started teaching, a computer took an entire building, and now you know there's more power in the cell phone that we talk on than, than in the computers of that day. So you know all sorts of things have changed. Now in the architectural engineering department, almost the entire time that I've been here, we have had a, a quota on the number of students and we could admit to the program. We only admit 100 students at the end of the freshman year, and these are students who have had good grades in their basic calculus and physics class. So we start out with high-quality students, so it's a matter of, well, is a high-quality student today different than a high-quality student 40 years ago? And I really don't think the quality of the student is, is any different. They, they know different things. They certainly do things differently. I've never, however, been one to say that the students are not as good now or better now uh, than they were before. I just work with what I have, and I think we get a good bit out of our students. You mentioned computers, and obviously there's been a huge change in that in the last 40 years. Uh, what are your thoughts on design software programs and their role in teaching? I don't use software in my classes very much. I I really think the students need to know the basic principles. So mm-hmm, definitely. You know, soft, software gets answers, but if you've got the wrong input, you're going to get the wrong answers. Now, when our students progress to their fifth year and are working on their project, we have a year-long design project in the fifth year. There we use software, and we use software to get answers, and then we work with the students on how to interpret the answers and make sure that they understand what the software is doing. I think you can teach a good bit of what we need to teach a, an undergraduate student without worrying about using software in the classroom. Absolutely. Not counting your cadre of students who found their way to AISC, who are some of your notable students and what were they like in the classroom? Well, that's a that's a difficult thing to say because we send students out into the profession in all sorts of different areas. So you may have uh, you may have someone who's out there running a, their own engineering firm and they are extremely successful and, and extremely talented and nobody hears about them. And then we have graduates who are out there as faculty members uh, at other universities who are making a name for themselves and for us. And we have people at the top of uh, of numerous engineering firms. So, you know, to identify some people from uh, professional firms, uh, one of my former students is a principal at SLM. One of my former students is uh, a principal at Thornton Tomasetti. These are, you know, these are folks who have really progressed and making an impact. Were they your best students, or were you surprised, or was that exactly what you expected from them? I think it's what I've expected of them. I, I imagine there are some out there who, you know, if I really looked at what they're doing, would surprise, would have been a surprise. But the thing is, if they are using the talents that they have, and every one of our students is talented, there's no question about that. Whether they used it during their undergraduate days or not is another story. But, you know, some students have talents uh, in business and in managing an office and making things happen where they might not have been all that talented in terms of crunching numbers or interpreting, you know, design problems. So they, they go in the direction that's best suited for their, their talent. What should high school students think about when they're looking at a university if they're thinking about going into engineering? Well, it all depends on the on the kind of engineering that my experiences with architectural engineering and working with high school students almost the entire 40 years that I've been here. I always tell them that if they walk to school and go past a construction site and don't even look at it, then they probably aren't really interested in architectural engineering. 
looking up, there's some interest. If they look and see what's going on, they don't have to spend a lot of time there, but if they at least look and see what's going on, then, then yeah, maybe architectural engineering is for them. Architectural engineering is kind of a hard degree to find, isn't it? Yeah, isn't there, there are very relatively, right, relatively few accredited architectural engineering programs in the country, and my, my knowledge is a bit out of date since I'm not really working in that area in terms of working with our undergraduate programs and things anymore. I don't know the exact number, but you know we're probably up in the neighborhood of 15 or 16 accredited programs mm-hmm. around the country. And so I have always taken that as a, a real plus, because when I go to a meeting, I don't tell people I'm a structural engineer. I tell them I'm an architectural engineer. And then I know that they don't know what that means. It gives me an opportunity to explain what architectural engineering is. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then I can talk about the structures and the mechanical systems and the lighting and the electrical and the construction and all the things associated with architectural engineering. You're known for your outrageous and colorful necktie collection. <laughs> um, your students know that you never wear the same tie twice in a semester, or is it in a year? In a year. In a year. So yeah, I started that tradition. Well, my... My stepmother gave me a really bright tie, and that had to be back in the 70s. It just sort of built on that. I really liked it. It was a bright, flowery tie, and I liked that. I've picked up ties in all sorts of different uh, ways. Students have given me ties. Family have bought ties. I've got shopping bags full of ties from people who didn't want their ties anymore. I don't. I don't wear them as much now that I am retired. I think my wife is happy that I don't wear ties quite so much. She thinks I need to look more relaxed. If it were really 100% up to me, I'd wear a tie seven days a week. I really enjoy the tie. I enjoy being dressed up, I guess. I enjoy getting comments on the ties. I I try to wear a tie every time I fly on a trip. Uh, Uh I'd rather look like I'm a professional on a on a trip than some slob who is wearing <laughs> cut off jeans holy t shirts. Can't imagine you're in cut off jeans, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> so, and honestly yeah. I have to say it's odd to see you without a tie. I think I've seen you without a tie once and it was it was very odd. Yeah, it it is odd. <laughs> it's odd for me too. I'm sitting here right now with a dress shirt on but no tie. Now my wife wouldn't let me wear dress shirts in the summer because they needed ironing and she didn't want me to wear dress shirts and but I but throughout the, the academic year, you know, I would wear a different tie every day, and I just have moving from one rack to another, so I knew which I had worn and which I hadn't worn. So, do you know how many ties you have? No, I've never, I've never counted them. So, are they going to be slowly phased out and give it away now that you don't wear them all the time? Yeah, but I'm not sure I can find anybody to give them to. <laughs> not sure anybody really wants my ties. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll take them and I'll have one of my daughters make a quilt out of them. That's an excellent idea. Okay, so you have a reputation for being a very practical academic. Who is most responsible for your common sense? I guess I'd have to, it'd have to go back to my father. My, my father didn't graduate from high school. He went into the Army during World War II as an airplane mechanic. When he got out, he um, started a, a business as a mason contractor. And he always, he always had a mechanical knowledge. He could fix anything and build anything. And it was just that way around the house. We did things pretty practical around the house. And my uncles were the same way, so it seemed to be a family trait. And I have brothers that, and even my sister, who all have a pretty practical approach to things. And so, you know, when I ended up in the building industry, it was not a surprise. I mean, that's what I grew up with. I've never been all that excited about talking high-level theoretical things when you could just explain things in some simple way that people could understand. Mm -hmm. That's the approach that I took. It's always seemed to work a whole lot better with students if you explain things in a way that they actually could understand it. I 
think that's something that makes your seminars that you do for AISC so great, too, is that you just sit and explain everything so easily, and everybody just totally gets it. Well, that's the goal, anyway. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, I think you you achieve it. Um, You said that your father was a mason contractor? Right. Did you ever work with him when you were young? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Summers. Lots of summers carrying. I told somebody the other day I used to be able to carry a a 12-inch concrete block in each arm. Wow. Now I can hardly pick one up. (laughs) Well, that was probably a lot of good exposure, good experience before you you went into college. Well, I wanted to be an architect. I I grew up around building. He built built homes. And, uh, you know, architect design homes was around that all the time. And I I thought I wanted to be an architect. I thought I wanted to go back home and and work for the local architect. You know, as, as my academic career developed, I realized that, you know, really I was not an architect. I didn't think like an architect. I, I thought more like an engineer. So that's why you switched? Yeah. Well, I think you made an excellent decision. Well, I've been happy with it. There's, I've got no, no regrets about the career path that I chose. Frankly, everything fell into place very nicely here at, at Penn State. I've had opportunities, been able to do all sorts of really neat things, be associated with some really neat people, mm-hmm. both students and faculty. So then after you had a full career as an educator, you joined the AISC staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how was AISC different than you expected when you took up? I'm not sure what I really expected. I think that was that was the thing. I didn't want the job. I, <laughs> I, I told Lou Buffett, who was the president, that, you know, I really didn't think I wanted to leave teaching. And he said, well, what you need to do is look at it as teaching a different group of people. And that was really very helpful for me. Uh-huh. I had always done seminars for AISC from back in the 80s. Um, and so, I, you know, I knew what that was like. I enjoyed doing that. And, and that was very much like, you know, my experiences helping my classmates when I was in architecture. You, you learn it so much better if you're going to stand up there and talk about it that uh, I really enjoyed doing those seminars. So, you know, as, as I thought about the possibilities and then at, I arranged with AISC that I could continue to teach one class a semester at Penn State. Of course, one of the big things was that I wasn't leaving State College, so I was not going to move to Chicago to be Vice President of Engineering. Um, and Luger had agreed uh, to that, and, and that was primarily because, you know, the next in command in engineering was Charlie Carter, who was a former student of mine, and we had an extremely good working relationship. And I guess Lieberfett knew that that would work. I think it did. I think we had a good uh, a good run at uh, making some things happen at AISC. Certainly, we brought out the new unified specification, 13th edition manual. There are all sorts of things that we accomplished over that period of time. Uh, but I enjoyed it. Now, like I said, I don't know that I thought too much about what it would be like so that I could say that it, it didn't meet or it did meet my expectations. It, it is amazing how much technical work AISC does fact accomplish in it, and that's due certainly to the leadership of the staff we have at AISC, but, but more than that, it's due to the extremely fine volunteers we have, uh, the three or 100 or so professionals who give of their time to do all the things that AISC actually does. Now, I know that some of the folks who have come to AISC uh, to visit, uh, whether it be my, my students, we send our students to Penn State out to Chicago field trip every year, and many times they get to go through AISC. But a lot of people have commented that they got to AISC and they didn't see all the people they thought had to be there for all the things <laughs> that we accomplished. It's just such a small group. Yeah, and, do you think we have a much bigger staff? Yeah, right. And it's, you know, it's because of the volunteers. That's really what makes AISC.
Absolutely. And that leads right into my next question. You've been a uh, AISC committee member, um, both as a staff member and as a volunteer. So could you share some insights about, about AISC committee work? Well, as, as obvious from my previous comments, it's extremely important to, to AISC. And it's really a great thing, I think, for the, the volunteers who are involved. When I was involved in things before I became a staff member, it was it was exciting to be involved with the forefront of what's of what's going on. Uh, you're working with researchers who are finding out new things and bringing them to committees. You're working with practitioners who are pushing the limits of, of what structural engineering with scale is, is all about. And you're in the same room with these folks. And you'll learn an enormous amount just from talking about things that are going on today in the profession. What's going on back at the university or what's going on in the office down the street. Uh, but it does take a lot of time and effort on the part of the volunteers. AISC committee work is not a place to go if you want your name on a committee just to put on a resume because there is a lot of work to be done. And if you are on a committee and you're not pulling your fair share, it's going to be obvious because there are other people on that committee who are doing a lot of work. And so when the, the workload gets distributed within the committee, and you know, keeping in mind they're all volunteers, uh, you can't just sit there and, and sort of slink away without getting an assignment. You're going to get an assignment. Uh, your, your colleagues are going to be working with you, and they're going to be expecting. You said you're going to review two design examples by three weeks from today, and there's likely to be a conference call, and you're going to talk about it. So it, it's demanding, but it, it's extremely rewarding. You recently retired from AISC, where we talked about you were vice president. And among many other things, you were very involved in the continuing education program. Uh, what value do you see in continuing ed for practicing professionals? Well, things are always changing in the profession. And the professional needs to be knowledgeable about, about what is changing. Uh, it's very difficult for, for engineers to want to change. They're, they're used to doing things the way they've been doing them. And there are any number of examples that I use in my seminars. Yeah, right. 
AISC recently announced that they will be naming their new seminar series the Lewis S. Geschwinder Seminar Series. What did you think about well, that? That's pretty neat, that? but they, frankly, the only the only thing that came to mind was like people are going to have a tough time spelling that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is it is a great honor because continuing education is really that's where my first connection to AISC was. I think people who know me know that education is for the education part. So it's kind of neat, and you know, it's something that uh, that lasts longer than just my time at AISC. Mm-hmm. So I was very, I was very, very pleased. With that. Did you know um, when they announced it that that meant that you had write the first time in the series? Well, I sort of figured that after a little bit of discussion. <laughs> <laughs> well, we thought that was really fitting. Yeah, right. <laughs> So you do a lot of lecturing for us for AISC's Continuing Ed program. Um, do you have a favorite or most memorable place that you've traveled for a lecture? Well, I think I think probably the opportunity to go to Alaska to do a seminar was probably one of the highlights. Now, you know, I, we've gotten, I say we, my wife and I, when I go to neat places, she gets to go. When I go to Podunk, you know, she stays home. But, you know, we, we've been to Hawaii for seminars. We've been to Alaska for seminars. We've been all over the state. Uh, been to Puerto Rico, just came back from Puerto Rico for a seminar this past weekend. So those those are neat places, but, you know, you also get to go to some places that don't have uh, as exotic-sounding names, maybe, but uh, you get to see a different a different town. Mm-hmm. And, and I get to see former students, and that's, that's always fun. Oh, yeah, that's probably fun. And they do line up to you. Oh, yeah, yeah, they do come up and say hello. <laughs> Some of them come up and think I won't remember them, and turns out I do remember them. I don't necessarily recognize them, but I remember a lot of the student names. Mm-hmm. Couldn't tell you where they were or what they were doing necessarily, but when they come up and, and say hello to them, the name is easily recognized. So uh, is there anything that, when you reflect on your tenure with the ISC, what, what makes you the most proud? I think what we were able to do with getting the 2005 specification out, uh, that was a really major thing, the specification and the manual. And everybody on staff and all of the volunteers had to cooperate and work very hard because our goal was to get it out in a time frame that merged with the International Building Code publication site. And that made it a relatively short cycle for a very, very major activity. Mm-hmm. And we were successful at that. We got it out. And I'm really, really, really pleased to have been involved in that. Yes, that was definitely a major undertaking. So definitely something to be very proud of. So now you're retired from from teaching and from AISC, so I guess that means now you're in your retirement. You're just sitting around not doing much. Yeah, that's why I'm sitting here in the office, and you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm in the office before most everybody else. I, when I am in town, I'm usually in the office about seven. Um, and you know, by the time the first faculty members roll in, I've already had a day's worth of work being done. Uh, I have a lot of work to do for for Cindy and getting the 14th edition manual finalized. I've been doing a lot of proofreading and checking the typeset material, trying to answer questions or raise questions when I think things aren't coming out the way we wanted them. So I've been doing that with, with Cindy. And of course, I'm still doing continuing education seminars, and I still have uh, a couple of things to write for NASCC. And I've been working on the second edition of my uh, structural steel design text. I've got that into the publisher now. So now the process is the part of the process that goes into production, reading the uh, the edited material, making sure that the editor has done it right, and then reading the typeset material. Hopefully by middle of the fall, that book will be out. So that's keep busy. And yeah, it sounds working. like you're, you're just as busy now. Oh, yeah. It's not more yeah, so. Yeah, I'm as busy. And, it, you know, when you take time off to go to a seminar and then you come back, there's all those things that you didn't get done. So it's just like mm-hmm. it was before. It's just nobody's paying me a salary. 
doesn't sound like a very good deal, Lou. Yeah, that's what people tell me. <laughs> when I when well, I first retired from Penn State, I, I did a, a presentation for structural engineers. Uh, I think it was the American Science Civil Engineering Structural Engineering Institute in the, the Washington D.C. area. And after the present, after I did the seminar, then one of my former students who was in charge came up and presented me with a plaque with two definitions on it. One was retire, and the other was retirement. And he said I, he thought I needed that because it didn't look like I knew what they meant. <laughs> I would definitely agree with that. But we're glad at AISC that you're still very involved with, with all the things that you do. Well, it's hard to stop. I mean, if you're dealing with things you enjoy doing, it's not really like it's work. And it's always been that way. I, I walk to work. I've walked to work every day, well, except when I can bum a ride with my wife. But I walk to work, uh, and I've, over the years I've thought a lot about, well, what would I be doing if, if I didn't do this? What would I like to do? And, you know, there's, there's nothing I'd like to do different than what I've been doing. I've just really enjoyed my teaching and my academic career, and I enjoyed the, the AISC career as well. That's great. I don't, I don't know that a lot of people can say that. Yeah, I feel very, very fortunate. So, um, books. You said you're you're working on your your textbook. Yeah, the the second edition. Bring it up to date with the 2010 specification and the 14th edition manual. And I've gotten through the the writing. We sent it out for reviews. Got that back, and I made the revisions. And now it's in. It's really now in the publisher's hands. So it's it's all the publishing process now. So other than your own book, um, could you recommend any books that every practicing structural engineer should read? Well, I suppose they ought to read the steel bank. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I'm not a I'm I'm not a big reader. Most of my reading is done on airplanes mm-hmm. and I don't generally read structural engineering. Okay. I read biographies, history type things, but you know, there there are lots of of classical engineering books that I think you know every structural engineer ought to have because there's all sorts of information in there to, to look for and find and use. But I don't have any really good recommendations on well, everybody ought to read this reading thing. Well, I guess as long as everybody's read the AISC specification, we'll call that good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, what's the biggest change in steel design that you see coming on the horizon? That's a difficult question. Um, you know, structural steel is is not a whole lot different. I think if things are going to change in a big way, it's going to have to do with the processes that we use building buildings. And I think it's going to cross all sorts of types of building materials. Such, You know, we always talk about the fact that the modulus elasticity of steel is the same regardless of the strength. So I always tell my students, if you want to make a fortune, come up with steel with a higher modulus elasticity. <laughs> That's but, an excellent uh, idea. <laughs> yeah, you know, that isn't that isn't likely to happen. No, we tend to, we tend to make incremental incremental. Uh, what we need to do is see what's going on in other areas. Can we bring those things to bear on what we do now in structural steel? One of the ideas that I have had for a long time: couldn't we find some glue that we could glue our steel together? Now, the guys in bolting and welding wouldn't necessarily like that, but uh, we were, we have glue. We have glue experts then. Yeah, that's right. We have glue experts. And you know, the, the way buildings are built has got to change. We still have the same kinds of buildings that we've had for a long, long time, and their their interaction with the environment is more critical today than, than it has ever been. So all of the things associated with energy use in building need to be addressed. And I think you know, I think structural steel as a structural material is well situated for dealing with how we might change the way we build buildings. Mm-hmm. You know, different kinds of exterior skin that can react differently to the environment. The structure is inside that and holds it up. And because steel is so strong and, and relatively small cross-section, it, it doesn't get in the way of what the skin is trying. So mm-hmm. I think there are some real there. It would be neat if we could find a nice automated way to do more with our structure. There have been a number 
economically feasible then, but the economics has changed so in many ways. But if I really had the answer to your question, then I would just go to Tom Schlafly and say, Tom, this is where you ought to do all your research. And uh, he's asked me that question a lot, but I haven't been able to give him much of an answer. Yeah. So maybe not just one big thing, but a lot of little things. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, how much time do you spend on managing your facial hair? Well, I just deal with that shaving in the morning and waxing my mustache in the morning, and normally I don't have to deal with it throughout the day. But I've had this mustache for 40 years. Wow. it for 40 years. There's no reason to uh, think there'll be any change. Did your father have a mustache like that? No. No, no in fact, uh, it, it was very interesting. I had a, I had a full beard, and it was really pretty scuzzy. And <laughs> I had a little a little baby. I had it actually my daughter, my oldest daughter, about a year and a half. And my wife was pregnant, and I decided, that I didn't want the new baby to see me with this beard, that I got to get rid of it. And I was really concerned that, that my daughter wouldn't recognize me if I shaved off the beard. So I stood her in the doorway of the bathroom while I shaved. Of course, she could care less. Uh, it didn't make any difference to her that I didn't have the beard. But that's how I know, you know, when I started the handlebar mustache, because I shaved the beard and started whirling the mustache. At that point, that was between Christmas of 2000, or yeah, Christmas of uh, of 1970 and New Year's of 1971, and then my second daughter was born in, in January of 71. So I've always had that date pretty well, pretty well fixed. So I knew how I've had it now. The next time I went back home to New Jersey, it turned out that my brother, who's five years younger than me, also had a handlebar mustache, and neither one of us knew the other was doing it. Does he still have his? Yeah, yeah. he did yeah. shave his off for a very short period of time, but but he grew his back. Does it get in the way when you drink coffee? Well, I have a, a coffee cup, which is uh, a mustache cup that has garnered on it, so that helps. Excellent. Uh, you're also known for being um, a car buff. Uh, yeah. What type of car would you recommend? I would recommend a Ford Mustang of any vintage. Excellent. Do you have one? Well, I have three in various conditions. I have a 64 or 65 uh, convertible, which has been at the body shop for eight years. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm ever going to get it back. And I have a 68 coupe, which is rusting away at home because I haven't paid good attention to it. And I have a 2005 convertible. Wow. I got the 2005 convertible because I wanted one I could drive. Yeah. So I drive that as long as it's not bad weather. But I, I got it on the on July 1st, 2005, and it had, uh, at the beginning of this past summer, it had just under 3,000 miles. So I don't drive it too much. I drove it more this summer. Yeah. So you like to keep it in good condition, so only in good weather. That's right. Which we haven't had much of this winter. Yeah, that's for sure. So I have one last question for you. Um, I'm sure you're a proud, proud grandfather. So why don't you tell us about your grandkids? Well, I have nine grandchildren. My oldest is uh, 14, and the youngest will be three in March. I have three daughters. Each daughter has three kids. I have five granddaughters and four grandsons. That's a nice even distribution. Yeah, it works pretty well. <laughs> Actually, that's nine kids, and that's enough for a baseball team. So for Christmas, I got a polo shirt with uh, with grandpa. All-Star team on the back of it, and each of the kids is playing their appropriate position uh, based on the, the numerical identification of baseball players in the field. <laughs> so everybody who looks at it is just impressed that my wife knew enough to put all those kids in the right positions. Yeah. Do they all live close to you? One family lives here in State College, and then the other two are about two hours away. Our, our oldest daughter lives uh, in Red Lion, Pennsylvania, south of York, and our middle daughter lives in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, and they just moved out. They were in Loveland, Ohio, for years. They just back. So, yeah, they're all pretty close. We get to see them. Good That's day. great. Well, I think that concludes our interview. Okay. Hopefully, you've got something that somebody wants to listen to. Oh, it'll be great. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. 
Join us next month for an interview with AISC Vice President and Modern Steel Construction Editor Scott Melnick. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.